Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Politics. Today, we are joined by Dr. Michael Bitzer. I'm going to let him introduce himself in a minute here, but we are joined by him today to discuss the background of North Carolina politics, new politics, and the Old South, how they compare, and diving into the dynamics of the different parties in our state and how they've evolved over the decades, how our leaders have evolved over the decades. So I'm going to go ahead and let our special guest introduce himself. Uh, I'm Michael Bitzer. I'm a professor of politics and history at Catawba College, where I hold the Leonard Chair of Political Science. Where's Catawba College? In Salisbury. In so Salisbury. Kind of halfway between Charlotte and Winston-Salem, Greensboro. Okay, okay, interesting. So we're going to get right into our topic. And sure. um, so the first thing that we kind of want to uh, get a little bit more details on is uh, your background, what exactly you've done in the um, law field and what got you interested in this in this career path. Sure. Uh, it actually started probably in high school and college. I thought I wanted to go into law, practice law, so I was thinking about different majors in college. I bounced between English and history, and really it, it got solidified when I did a summer internship for a local law firm uh, from where I'm from in Clemson and decided, you know, law really isn't what I want to do. It's more about what I want to study. And so what I did was uh, pursue a master's in history and kind of focused on American political and legal history, and then pursued a PhD in political science where one of my fields was public law, studying constitutional law, the judicial process, uh, an area called administrative law, in combination with studying American politics and public administration. And so my interest in the law really is all about what are the rules of the game of politics in the United States? And for so many of us who study this, the Constitution is the basic ground rules. Uh, when we pass laws, when we pass statutes, when we pass ordinances, those are all the rules to the game of politics. Mm -hmm. And so I view it very much in, in that kind of light. And that's how I teach it to, to my students. Wait, that's that's actually really something that I want to expand on. And that's that's interesting because there's this sort of game theory um, when it comes to a lot of politicians. And and this is something that the average American may not know. But there's there's this game theory kind of thrown about when you talk about political um, not agendas, but kind of what people mm -hmm. try to push in Congress and stuff like that. Can you expand a little bit more on on maybe what the average American citizen might not know, but there is sort of this um, element to politics when it comes to strategizing and um, playing it more. 
I keep thinking of Mitch McConnell's book, The Long Game. I think that's kind <laughs> mm-hmm. of what, what I'm trying to get at. Can you can you explain to the average American kind of that kind of game theory? Yeah, I, I think certainly if you think of politics as a game, I mean, we have all played games, and there are certain components to the game. There are the rules of the game. There are players. There are teams. There are umpires, referees. Uh, where you play the game, on courts or on fields, uh, what are your strategies, what are your objectives uh, to, to playing a game? And the way that I teach my introductory class to American politics is very much, if you can understand a game, you can understand American politics because we have teams, we have rules, we have umpires, we have places where we play the game, But really, the main objective for most politicians nowadays and for a lot of engaged citizens, I would say, is the idea of what is the objective of this game. And it's a game about political power, the power to have governing control. And the way that I describe it is if you're centered on power, that leads to politics which is basically the means of expressing that power. Once you have control of the means of expressing political power, you're creating public policies. Those are government decisions to do something or choose not to do something. And when government chooses to do something, that then leads to one group being favored over another group. And guess what? That leads us back to political power. So power is all about who wants it, who has it, and how are they going to get it. And that, to me, is very much encapsulated in this idea of if you think about it from a game analogy, that then helps people kind of put the puzzle pieces together as to what they are seeing going on in our modern politics. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for expanding on that, because I, I that's something that we are taught in a basic civics lesson, but then we kind of forget as we get older. And sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so let's I, I kind of want to expand on your research. You have yeah. Um, yeah. the the new politics of the old South. Can you explain what that is? And um, and then we'll get into more of the details. Sure. It's a basic uh, introduction to Southern politics. So there are chapters on all of the states in the South, and we loosely define that as being states that seceded, that were part of the Confederate States of America during the Civil War. And what we're basically doing, a group of political scientists, oftentimes within the respective states, write chapters every four years kind of describing, okay, what has happened in North Carolina? as opposed to what's happened in South Carolina or Alabama or Texas or Florida. And I think the general thought is, you know, the South has been so influential, not just in American history, but in modern American politics. After World War II, the realignment, the change in the South from a solid democratic South to now being a competitive and and more Republican region really has a lot of influence and impact on American politics writ large. And I think what we're trying to do as political scientists is kind of explain what's going on in each state 
but then give a sense of, well, the region has had just as much impact uh, on the nation's politics as, as really any other region in the country. Uh, is there anything about North Carolina politics in your research going back into, you know, the Old South compared to new politics that mm-hmm. stands out to you that makes North Carolina kind of special in a way that uh, compared to other states in the way that they've handled law changes in politics throughout the years? Yeah, I think North Carolina has been a fascinating case study, not just in uh, modern times, but really in, in historic times. And, you know, for, for so much of the period, say, 1900 up to the 1960s, North Carolina was, was part of what we call the solid Democratic South, meaning it was basically the Democrats' region. If you wanted to run for political office, you ran under the Democratic Party. And for many southern states, the Republican Party was maybe a handful or, or a very distinct minority within that political dynamic. North Carolina was rather unique in that we had a strong base of republicanism in the mountains and in the eastern part. But the eastern part of the state republicanism was driven by black citizens. And they were very much republicans, voters, combined with whites in the Piedmont and into the mountains. After 1900, however, with a constitutional amendment that that basically disenfranchised black Republican voters, uh, Republicans became the distinct minority. But Democrats were always fearful that maybe someday the Republicans will come back uh, during this first half of the 20th century. So they were always fairly more uh, moderate, more constrained in what they chose to do focus on, as opposed to a state like South Carolina, uh, that basically, you know, Democrats during that first half of the 20th century basically could do whatever they wanted to do. And the party became the party of of infighting versus in North Carolina, Democrats basically had to work with each other to prevent Republicans from potentially coming to, to bear. So in modern times now, post-1960, uh, very much a, a state, North Carolina is very much a state that resembles the realignment in the South. Uh, white voters whose father and granddaddy and great-granddaddy were all Democrat became Republican voters. And black voters uh, in the mid-1960s with LBJ and the national focus on civil rights and voting rights became wholehearted Democrats. So this transition is oftentimes hard for people to understand, particularly when I teach Southern politics, because most students think, well, the conservative party is the Republican Party and the liberal party is the Democratic Party. Yeah, that was the case. But, you know, 50, 100 years ago, that was not the case. It was actually the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. And so kind of going a little bit more into to modern day. So the the explanation that you just gave right now, could that also mm-hmm. explain why we have, for example, here in the East, we have Butterfield, Congressman Butterfield, who is a Democrat. And then we have mm-hmm. Congressman Greg Murphy, who is um, who is a Republican. And they're they're pretty opposite on their views, but they're both pretty much 
their their um, congressional districts are right next to each other. And then the same thing with, you know, the two Republican senators and the Democratic governor that we have. Are there other factors influencing um, the fact that we kind of have a unique mix of politicians where it seems pretty split down the field? Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I think uh, a, an astute political observer, uh, Rob Christensen, who used to write columns oh, yeah. for the Raleigh News and Observer, called it the paradox of Tar Heel politics. You know, how could a state in 2020 vote for Donald Trump, Tom Tillis, and then flip and vote Democratic? for Roy Cooper for governor. And what I tell folks is that's been the legacy for the past 50 plus years of this state's history. I mean, if you just go back to 2004, uh, before 2008's really kind of seminal election in this state, North Carolina was very much a Republican red state at the federal level and a Democratic blue state at the state level. And in 2004, North Carolina voted for George W. Bush by 12 percentage points. You then get to the governor's race, and Mike Easley, the incumbent Democratic governor, wins by 12 percentage points. So you basically have a 24-point swing from voting Republican president to voting Democratic for governor. And that, that was the, the norm in North Carolina politics. Uh, up to 2004, for president and U.S. Senate, Republicans won with 52% of the vote between 1984 and 2004. You flip over to the Council of State Elections, all the statewide executive offices, Democrats win 53.8% of the vote. So it, it was very much a kind of bifurcated paradox of voting patterns. What's happened since 2008? and I attribute both 2008 and 2010, is that North Carolina basically has become more sorted. People tend to become party loyalist. If you're a Democrat, you're going to vote Democratic down the ballot. If you're a Republican, you're going to vote Republican down the ballot. And that era of swing voters, that 24-point swing, is now down to maybe two or three percentage points. And so that middle ground, that swing voter in North Carolina that could decide elections has shrunk. They're still in the electorate, but their numbers are so small now, and the elections are so competitive in this state that I think this is the new dynamic of North Carolina's politics for the foreseeable future, at least. For at least the... Um when it comes to this dynamic and when it comes to this year, they're doing, I believe, redistricting mm -hmm. um, later this year. Um, could that dynamic, even though it's competitive right now, could that dynamic change after redistricting and make it less competitive? Well, certainly when you're talking about dividing the state into districts, uh, that does skew everything to one party over the other. And we have seen that play out in North Carolina over the past uh, several decades with redistricting. But when you divide a state that is so competitive, you can draw districts that heavily favor one party over the other. And what's going to be fascinating is with this, with this year's redistricting efforts, how do Republicans in the General Assembly you know, deal with partisanship that ultimately benefits them, 
but that the courts in 2019 said you can't engage in too much partisan gerrymandering. I think that's going to be the wild dynamic, the wild card that I see kind of in the midst of all this uh, redistricting effort is how much are they going to push the envelope to basically draw districts to favor them, not just for the congressional districts, but for state legislative control as well. I'm curious to know how much like how much of effect do you think it will have when sort of towards the end of the year when the pandemic starts starts dying down a little bit more things start reopening officially things start going back to that you know old normal as people are saying there's been a lot of criticism when it comes to the way that leaders have handled um have handled uh the pandemic do you think that because we've kind of seen leaders at their most pressing kind of trial by fire, do you think that'll have any influence on whether or not people will vote for Governor Roy Cooper in the next election if he decides to run again? And in the next Senate race, if there's going to be more Republicans, like if it's going to stay Republican, does that make sense? Yeah, okay. I, I think first first and foremost, I think the, the pandemic has certainly become politicized. Uh, We saw that last year in things like uh, voting methods. You know, Democrats were much more willing to vote by mail. Republicans insisted, no, I'm going to vote in person. And that that was a direct consequence of what we saw with the pandemic. I think overall in this state, uh, Roy Cooper got pretty positive uh, approval ratings regarding how he was dealing with the pandemic. I think what you are going to see post-pandemic is another battle between a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature regarding emergency powers. How much can the chief executive uh, push emergency powers to do things that perhaps the legislature doesn't like? You're seeing that play out with the uh, State Board of Elections and the, the issue of settling a case regarding voting by mail and how the legislature was left out of it. You know, what what basis, what emergency powers did the State Board of Elections have to deal with things like voting by mail when the state legislature said, this is state law, this is how it's going to be. Um, You know, the pandemic has just brought into light what the role of government is and what everybody's perspective on the role of government should be. When we talk about elections in 2022 and 2024, uh, Roy Cooper's term limited, so it will be an open seat contest in 2024 for that. But before we get to 2024, we got to get to 2022 (laughs) and the Richard Burr uh, U.S. Senate election. And that's going to be an open seat election. And honestly, I think both party primaries are pretty much going to be indicative of where the parties are right now. For example, on the Democratic side, it's probably going to come to a battle of do Democrats follow the traditional historic Democratic candidate of a moderate, typically white, typically male candidate, somebody like a Roy Cooper? Or are they going to branch out and address the diversification that the party is experiencing and has been experiencing 
and perhaps go with an African-American female. Uh, I think that that's going to be a real test case for where the heart and the soul of the North Carolina Democratic Party is. On the Republican side, it's pretty much a battle of who's going to be the most Trumpian in terms of the, the party candidates. And I think, you know, if somebody with the last name of Trump gets into the race, it's pretty hard to out-Trump a Trump. Uh, in in this dynamic. But that's going to be, I think, the real key test on the Republican side is who's going to most align themselves with former President Trump, who still appeals to a solid base of Republican voters. And I think the 2022 contest, once the primaries are done with, is going to be that still lingering effect of Trump Republicanism versus a kind of, is it a moderate or is it a more progressive North Carolina Democratic candidate? I just, I think we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. I agree. I yeah, think I was going to say, how do you think that's going to yeah, work we're gonna, out? We're literally just going to have to wait and see. Um, so, uh, and, and that's and that's oftentimes the hardest thing for people to, <laughs> to, to really get a hold of is, you know, the voter is going to have say on this. Let's not overanalyze and pontificate too much because the voters are going to have their say eventually. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, we are, you know, creeping up on the 20 minute mark. And I, sure. I, I want to talk about your chapter in Homer Simpson goes to Washington and we'll talk about notable leaders and then yeah. we'll kind of wrap up. But okay. What, what is this book? Homer Simpson goes to Washington. And what, <laughs> what did you write in that book? Yes. <laughs> So that book came out. It's actually another uh, series of chapters, and it's exploring American politics through popular culture. Mm -hmm. So movies, TV shows, um, at the time, you know, satirical uh, newscasts, uh, you know, th those kinds of things that are in popular culture but could give us ideas about how American politics plays out. And the chapter that I wrote on was called Homer's American Odyssey. And that was a direct play on Homer's Odyssey, the, the ancient Greek text. But the idea of using satire and the Simpsons to explain the American dream. What is it and how do people pursue it? And it really came out of a class that I taught uh, by the same name in terms of using the Simpsons as an exploration of society. How do we as society uh, become reflected in The Simpsons? And it was, it was a fun chapter that I wrote when I first started teaching here at Catawba, and uh, it's, it's lasted this long still. So uh, that, that's kind of how I got into it. Wow. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. The Simpsons is uh, the show where there's a lot of conspiracies about, you know, they're able to kind of predict the future of political things <laughs> happening. Was that part of your uh, your choice in, in selecting that? I, you know, at the time, I didn't think of it. But, <laughs> you know, what what was fascinating was there was one episode where uh, Lisa Simpson became president. And they were having to deal with, I think, a budget crisis or deficit crisis. And she turned to one of her aides and said, thanks, President Trump. And, you know, <laughs> at the time, it was, right. it was, you know, satire. It was hysterical. It was funny. Lo and behold, uh -huh. <laughs> we didn't get Lisa Simpson as president, but still, 
there's that that predictive power. <laughs> Definitely. That's funny. So um, uh, we'll move on to notable leaders. Yeah. Um, so w- who would you have to say, they don't have to be a politician, but just anyone really who's kind of shaped North Carolina politics to where it is today. Um, can you name out a few from the past hundred years or so? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're hearing in the news a lot about Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And that was the age of segregation, the age of voter disenfranchisement, particularly towards African-Americans. And I think in North Carolina, particularly 1898-1900, the then chair of the state Democratic Party was a gentleman by the name of Furnifold Simmons. Simmons became a U.S. senator. He, um, you know, the legacy is that he ran the Democratic Party machine for 20 to 30 years. But he was so influential in passing uh, a constitutional amendment that disenfranchised black North Carolinians from voting that it really had a huge impact for 60, 70 years on this state. So when we're debating things like voting rights and who can vote and when they can vote and how they can vote, North Carolina has a very long history, a troubling history, we have to be candid and frank about, uh, regarding voting rights or the limitations on voting. And so somebody like Furnifold Simmons, I think, you know, is somebody important in North Carolina political history. There's a lot of personalities in North Carolina politics, but in terms of modern ones, I would say certainly somebody like Jim Hunt, even though he's been retired, he's a four-term governor. He really exemplified the classic moderate Democrat at the same time. A person like Jesse Helms, a former senator uh, for 30 years from this state, famously known as Senator No, was the representation of social conservatism that is really evident in the Republican Party nowadays. I think that today's battle on those two dynamics is really played out by Roy Cooper and Phil Berger. And that, 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 that is that strain of North Carolina politics that continues to you know, be resurgent in our state's politics for, for some time. Interesting. Well, that pretty much wraps up our podcast, but we do have um, a personality question that we always ask our guests. And our personality question for you is, um, what book do you recommend that the average North Carolinian, the average person who pays attention to politics and and um, is interested in this sort of thing, but just doesn't really have time to go in depth and do a history lesson, mm-hmm. and do research and stuff. What kind of book would you uh, say would would be helpful? I think certainly uh, Rob Christensen's The Paradox of Tar Heel Politics. Mm. I mean, if you're looking for a personality based explanation since the 1900s up to today, I think his book just hands down covers the dynamics of how individuals shape politics, but also how politics shapes individuals. And so that would be the book that I would say, if you need to do some light reading, want a good chuckle at times, want to be amazed by the state's uh, political dynamics, I think Rob's book is really the book to look to. Perfect.
perfect. Wonderful. Well, okay. thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. We really appreciate it. Yes. It's and- been my pleasure. All right, everyone. That's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. Me and Victoria release a new episode every Tuesday night, so be sure to stay with us every Tuesday for those new episodes. You can find them on WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network. You can also find them on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, guys. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.